Hi everyone, welcome to the Things I Never Said podcast. It is currently September 13th, and with us are guests Dr. Alex Tran and Dr. David Tran. We are your host, Beatrice, and this is Wendy. And today we'll be talking with these two Asian American doctors to learn more about their experiences and how they've been doing during this pandemic. Please note that this podcast may contain triggering and or sensitive topics. If you feel triggered or need a second to breathe, please take care of yourself first and know that we've included resources in the description. If you'd like to jump around the different topics we cover, I'm going to outline the different time codes for each discussion. At 119, why and how these doctors decided to work in healthcare. At 415, how the pandemic has affected the healthcare workplace and patients. At 7.59, how Dave set up new protocols to keep his staff and patients safe. At 11.06, Alex's experience in emergency care. At 14.44, what happens if you can't make health decisions for yourself. At 16.07, their experience working with COVID patients. At 24.40, explaining intubation. At 27.47, facilitating last words between patients and family members. At 33.04, death and goals of care conversations. My name is Alex Tran. I'm a resident physician in emergency medicine in New York City. I'm Dave Tran. I'm a family medicine and palliative care physician based in the Bay Area. All right. Thank you both. This is a question for both of you. How and why did you decide to work in healthcare to begin with? It's one of those things that started when I was a, like a kid. I think the first time I mentioned to my parents was four or five years old. And the whole idea was my, my little brother was born with a congenital heart defect and we had this amazing, amazing doctor and in many ways was just talked up in the family as this doctor gave you a brother. This doctor gave your brother life. Uh, this doctor allowed your brother to continue the rest of his life. And I think that just kind of built up through time. You kind of go from idolizing a career to kind of finding yourself really fitting into it. And so I think in school, it reinforces itself. I love science, but I really love talking to people, too. And then that builds upon itself as you kind of get older and you kind of re-examine your, your familial ties and your roots. And you realize that in a lot of ways, like medicine, while my dream and a lot of things that I want to do are tied to medicine, is also a very much um, generational familial immigrant dream. It's, it's not just me going through med school. It's me, my parents, and this whole community that helped raise me and helped uh, give me a formal education. And so I think that's kind of how I, I came to it. And it, it continues to change every year. I, it reinforces itself time and time again, um, whether it be that patient that you didn't think would make it making it or, you know, your first intubation, your first central line. Um, so it's an ongoing and dynamic conversation about just checking in with yourself and really kind of looking deep and saying, is this what I want to do and why do I love the, doing what I do? I actually grew up as a caretaker. So when I was really young, my father had a serious terminal illness and I grew up as his main caretaker when I was in high school. By the time I got to college, I was still doing caretaking on the side, but was really starting to study science and was really um, doing a lot of work sort of in public health and starting to think about working with underserved communities. And I found my life journey sort of pushed me back towards working with serious illness um, and finding ways to combine, you know, serious illness care with working with the underserved and on some level working with global health. I used to do medical missions and things like that. And I think what drives me now is a lot of the relationships that I have um, with my patients and not just my patients, but their families and 
the understanding that we have between each other. Um, I find a lot of joy in that. And I find a lot of joy in finding ways to deliver care and helping those who are most in need. That's really amazing to hear because it sounds like both of you started from a very personal place when you decided this profession. During this pandemic, obviously, it's difficult on everyone, but particularly in the medical field. So can you speak a little bit about how this pandemic has changed your experience and your workplace and your and your relationship with your patients? I think my job as a palliative care physician before this, um, I have a really unique job where I do home and community-based palliative care. So what that means is that I normally do home visits um, for people who are unable to come into the clinic and people who are sort of um, high risk for having complications and things like that. So normally I visit patients in their home and I normally actually don't, I'm really lucky in my practice where I don't see a huge volume of people, but the people that I do work with are quite sick. And I went from doing, from sort of driving around uh, all day long uh, on top of running my team to needing to shelter in place and really needing to guide my practice. Um, So I run an entire team. My practice actually isn't just me, but it's a whole team, including a palliative care social worker, a nurse, a chaplain, um, nurse practitioners. So I went from sort of just driving around doing my usual thing to really having to figure out, you know, how do I keep my team safe, especially if they are trying to visit homes? And how do we do this with shelter in place? Um, and how do I keep my patients safe? So what ended up happening was that my work actually transitioned to mostly remote. I do about 80% remote work. And then I'd say about 20% of my patients are still home-based, meaning that they don't have internet access or access to technology. And so they still need someone to come out to their house and see them. It's definitely made that environment really, really challenging. Um, on top of the pandemic, me living in the Bay Area, there was a recent heat wave. There have been wildfires, air quality issues on top of the pandemic. And so uh, while driving around in the community used to be actually kind of relaxing, it's a really, really different story now. Uh, There's a lot of tension. A lot of people are really, really vigilant right now. And we're constantly monitoring how coronavirus is spreading in our community. Um, So that's really, really changed the way I work. And also the way I, I, I come home at night and how I think about things. Um, how are people um, vigilant when you say monitoring everything? My average patient is about 85 years old. Um, <laughs> and then the younger patients, and when I say younger, I mean more typically in their 50s and 60s, um, a lot of them are dealing with cancer. So they're pretty much all immunocompromised. So for my patient population, I know that the mortality rate, meaning the rate of people dying from coronavirus, if they do get exposed, is extraordinarily high. So, you know, I'm wearing uh, these days an N95 mask, a face shield, scrubs and gloves when I enter someone's home, Um, which I think actually can be a little shocking for some patients. But at the same time, they're having a shelter in place and not wanting to interact with people. And so we're trying to find this careful balance between me being able to provide care and also not exposing them and them trying to keep themselves safe and get the resources that they need. But this is on top of everything else that's going on. So a lot of our patients right now in the Bay Area are dealing with housing instability. They're trying to figure out how to pay their rent. They're trying to figure out how to get groceries without getting sick. They're trying to figure out how to get really basic needs and resources in place. So medical care is one component of that puzzle, I think.
And you mentioned that you know you are responsible for the health of your team as well. Um, so who are the who's responsible to kind of put that protocol in place? Like, is it from you? Is there some sort of a standard issued uh, protocol that's been coming from someone else? When the pandemic started, we didn't really have clear guidelines from the CDC. I think there were clear guidelines for hospitals and clinics, but what about people who are out in the community? So people like me who do home-based care, home health workers, caretakers, that sort of thing. So there really weren't any clear guidelines. We actually had to come up with them. And what I had to do was, and we actually were really lucky we decided to publish and we got published in the Journal of Pain and Symptom Management, but we had to come up with a whole triage system. And we literally had to look at every single patient on our panel. We're talking a couple hundred patients and say, okay, this person needs a video visit. This person should be seen in person. This person won't have access to technology and will have to do a telephone visit. And then this person will have to just kind of put on the back burner until we get all these other issues sorted out. Um, So we really had to re-triage every single patient on our panel, which is a lot to work with when you're talking about not just regular patients who have coughs and colds and allergies and sort of run-of-the-mill illnesses, but when you're dealing with cancer, dementia, chronic heart disease, and chronic lung disease, it gets uh, pretty complicated. (laughs) Yeah, I want to echo how difficult what Dave just pointed out is. The the CDC had guidelines and hospitals had to hire whole teams, like the leadership from top down, like people with MBAs, MDs, PhDs, working to put together policies. And so, you know, on a small-scale operation, that must have been grueling, but obviously amazing. It was an effort. It it takes, in my and I'm not just trying to pat myself on the back, but it takes real leadership to weigh out for one. You know, all these different factors that you know safety is one issue. There's economic factors, which are an entirely different issue to me, and balance out all these things. And it takes a lot of leadership to come up with policy. And I actually think my organization did a great job of that from the top down um, and giving us support. But with that in mind, there were people that disagreed with our approach. There were people who were furious at us. We definitely got yelled at. There was definitely, you know, discussions within our own team. You know, some people saying, I'm not afraid of this virus. I'm going to go keep doing the care that I do. And, and people like me having to step in and say, no, you, you really cannot do that. It's just too dangerous right now. It's not about being afraid of this virus or not being afraid of this virus. Whether you're afraid of it or not, it's still there. And so being real about the data, being real about the mortality data, looking really objectively at the risk and trying to make not just an emotional decision, but a a logical decision about this and having to temper a lot of the concerns around that and really address those concerns. That I think was probably one of the biggest challenges early on. And and Alex, working in emergency care, can you share how this pandemic has changed your workplace? I think to contrast with Dave a little bit, I do work in a hospital-based system and I work you know, emergency, the emergency department is usually tied to a hospital and therefore the work environment is a little bit more top down. We also have to see every single patient that comes our way. And so that kind of provides its own challenges and nuances. I can start with kind of just the structural changes that our hospitals made. My hospital basically divided people into suspected COVID patients and suspected non-COVID patients, which was 
in the beginning a great idea, but then it kind of became a little silly because almost everybody in New York City was a suspected COVID patient. The pandemic area or the where did you travel from? Did you were you in China at some point in the last three months became you're in New York City. This is the epicenter in the US. This is it. But I also want to comment on the other changes that we made that I thought were extremely beneficial to our community and our patients. And um, to tie David, uh, we actually took pal care, hospital-based pal- palliative care medicine, um, basically the same type of doctor that uh, David is, and we took them downstairs. We put a palliative care doctor at the door in our most acute area. And upon arrival, every patient and patient's family members had a goals of care discussion. You know, David can probably explain this better than I can, but in summary, it's a discussion of values and looking at someone's ultimate goals of care. And it usually kind of centered around in the ER specifically, it's centered around, do they want CPR and would they like to be intubated if needed? And so these are heavy discussions for almost anyone to have uh, alone, let alone with a, a doctor. But it was an amazing change in our hospital system because it it kind of allowed people to make this decision up front. And instead of, do you want this tube down your throat to help you breathe? Do you want us to do uh, life-saving procedures such as uh, CPR where we most likely we'll have to break your ribs and the success rate is 9%. Usually these discussions happen upstairs after people are already tubed or already had CPR done and they're in this critical state. And there's a huge difference between pulling out a tube and then not putting one in. And I think moving that discussion from upstairs in the ICU to downstairs in the ER before people were in this critical state, before families were pressed to make these decisions on a whim was a huge, huge move by the system. Um, so when you have when you first have these discussions with them, um, they are I'm guessing most likely are not at the state where they will require these uh, assistance, right? Yes, yes, no. I mean, it depends. Some people do come in in, in very severe respiratory distress, uh, especially during COVID, and some people don't. And so we kind of we wanted to catch everyone as early as possible. I think the ultimate goal in the greater yeah, broader healthcare system would be that everyone had this discussion in mind with their primary care doctor, a very healthy point in their life at 20, 30, 40, 50, and then revisit it every couple of years until they, until it becomes a normalized discussion about death and dying and, and how we get there. And um, is that decision, you know, what the patients want, is that something like a family member could overwrite or is that what they discuss with the doctor? That's the that's what's being upheld. So this is done on a state-by-state basis, but in California, it's technically uh, next of kin or whoever knows the patient best if there's not an advanced directive in place. So an advanced care directive for health is a document that really specifies and says, if I am sick, this is the order of people who would make decisions for me. If I'm not able to make those decisions for myself. Now, if you're awake and you're saying, hey, if I go down, please intubate me. That's that's fair. <laughs> but if you're not awake, you need someone to help me with those decisions. So in my case, it's like, you know, my spouse who's a physician, my best friend who's like a brother to me who I think will make good decisions for me. And, you know, another one of my family members after that. And so because families, modern families are really complex uh, and the types of relationships that they have. 
Uh, in California, the law is if you don't have an advanced care directive, it's sort of next of kin or who, who knows you best. So it's usually a spouse. It's often another unmarried partner. Um, sometimes it can be a boyfriend or girlfriend. And sometimes for a lot of my vulnerable elderly patients, it's been a neighbor or a close friend who just knows them. Yeah, definitely. Specifically, would you um, talk a little bit about your experience working with COVID patients? So I work in an ER. Uh, so basically for a couple months there, every single patient that came in was a, a COVID patient. And our job in the ER was to, or is, it continues to be to kind of decide what level of care they need. Is this person safe enough to go home? Is this person safe enough to to be watched for a little bit and then go home? Does this person need to stay in the hospital? Does this person need oxygen? Does this person need a, a, a tube and a ventilator? And so that was my day in, day out for, uh, I guess, my the last six months or so. And it was, it was, it was scary because, like David said, or, or Dave said earlier, um, we didn't, we still don't completely know what's going on with this virus and we started off by saying, all right, if you have a fever and then you have these ground glass opacities on your x-ray and then we're going to presume you have coronavirus and then we're going to measure your oxygenation using your pulse ox, that little, that little red light that they put on your finger when you go to the doctor's office. Um, a normal person sats between 95 to 99 and we're going to walk you with this on. And if you drop below eight, uh, 92%, we're going to admit you. And, and that was kind of what we were doing for a while. And then we, like Dave said, started figuring out this is a 32-year-old who came in with no comorbidities who had a stroke. What's going on there? Or this is a 12-year-old uh, who now has these rashes on their uh, hands and feet and are kind of looking like this other virus we know about, but they're way sicker. Like, what's going on there? And um, so that's kind of what we've been doing over the past couple of months. But anything from initial presentation to intubation or I mean putting the breathing tube down someone's throat um, to the discussion right before you know with their families on FaceTime um, this is your your family member's about to be intubated do you want to say some last words to them everything between there and that, uh, between that and now has been kind of like that I would highlight that a lot of times these things aren't um you know, from having done some emergency room work, these decisions aren't always clear cut. You could have someone who's 50 and they really don't look that sick, but they've got like these complaints that are worrisome and they might actually be having a heart attack. But, you know, on face value, they look like someone who should go home. You know, we don't have a crystal ball in front of us. Uh, although I feel like some really good emergency doctors seem to. <laughs> Alex can probably speak to this. You know, there's uh, there's a few doctors who have looked at me and said, you know what, um, we're going to keep this person. I'm like, why? They're, they look totally healthy. They're like walking around like in the emergency room wanting to go home. <laughs> like, no, 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 trust me. Like this person needs a stress test. Um, or like, I don't, I don't want to send this person home. I've got a bad feeling about this, right? And now you're having to do this with this great unknown. You know, when you, you think of that emergency care, people have been having like strokes and heart attacks for like thousands of years. But coronavirus is something that's only really been with us, what, nine, 10 months now? maybe a little bit longer than that. We're having to pivot and, and try to understand this a lot quicker. From my perspective, I would describe my work with coronavirus in terms of 
a lot of near misses, um, a lot of near exposures and having to be really vigilant about that. So, you know, one of the problems that we had initially was that we didn't have enough PPE and we didn't have enough tests. So if someone was going to send me into someone's home, I didn't have the right equipment. And if I got sick, no one would know why. And that was really worrisome because we didn't know the full extent of what the virus looked like. We didn't know where it started. On the West Coast, there was some thought that a lot of the early sort of explosion in cases was actually up in Washington, in Washington state. And there was some idea that, you know, coronavirus was already spreading in our community because San Francisco, the Bay Area is another hub, just like New York is, where a lot of people are going in and out from all over the world. You're dealing with this unknown. And so we actually had to just sort of shut down our home visit service until we could come up with a plan. And actually the Bay Area, I think in, in general, has done a pretty good job and people have taken this seriously. And where I work, they had set up um, on the outpatient side, meaning the, the non-hospital side, a respiratory clinic for people who had suspected coronavirus cases. And what that meant was that people were going to get tested outdoors and it was going to do it via drive-through instead of having, you know, 10 or more patients share the same room in, in one day where people are having to sterilize the room. So they had a dedicated respiratory clinic that they pivoted and actually set up within a very short amount of time. I think they did a phenomenal job with that. And then after that was the um, the county level testing that needed to come up, which we're I feel like we're still short on, on tests um, or reagents. There's always sort of something that's in the way. But what about people who can't leave their house? What if someone brought it into their home? How do you test those people? And so I've had to make some really difficult decisions. Um, personally, I have asthma, and so I worried very much for my own safety. But most importantly, I didn't want to expose an entire nursing home. If I was going to do a nursing home visit, I didn't want to expose an entire family. And I think the two anecdotes I would give in terms of my interactions is I had a patient who their family member actually was on hospice, and patient was the hospice patient's like spouse. And he started getting cough, fever, chills, just generally not feeling well. But on top of his other chronic illnesses, it sort of masked it. And this primary care doctor sent me a note saying, hey, Dave, you're, you're the home visiting guy, right? Like, you want to you go see this person? Or can you please go see this patient for us? Because we're, we're, we're worried about them. And I, I had to really take a look at this and go, yes, I think this person has coronavirus. <laughs> I'm like, what are you talking about? They, they were seen in urgent care, you know, through a video visit. I was like, no, 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 I, I think they have coronavirus. And I called and, and we actually set up a three-tier screening with my clinic, meaning that people are screened when you make the appointment. They're screened the day of when they confirm the appointment when I show up. And then I actually screen them again at the door just to make sure that, you know, there's no stone left unturned. Because even if the the patient themselves isn't sick, like the caregiver could be sitting there with a the fever and hacking off and you're going, hey, what's what's up with that? <laughs> um in this case, actually, the, the patient did have coronavirus. Their their spouse got it. And in that household, there were, I think, five caregivers. Three of them came back positive for coronavirus, and one of them actually got hospitalized. And I was thinking, oh, my gosh, I could have walked into this situation with, like, maybe five or six exposures just around me <laughs> in the environment. It's just in the air at that point. Um, with that enough PPE, that was sort of one scenario. But the other thing that's happened is that I've had patients who – we're already on in my service and because they're less acute, I've gotten to know them over the course of maybe a year, maybe a couple months. And I've actually already had their advanced care directive in place. 
And um, in California, we have something called a pollster, a physician order for life-sustaining treatment. That sort of is an agreement essentially between, it's a doctor's order that says, this is what I talked about with my patient. This is what they want. This is what they don't want um, in this specific situation. And so because my patients have already had that conversation, I've had to really be there to work with families um, using teleconference tools to say, hey, you know, I'm sorry, but this is the thing that we talked about. And this is what your mother or father or brother had told me that they would want at the end of their life. And while this situation with coronavirus is a little bit different, this is specific to what their wishes were. And I think we should try to respect that as best as we can, but also figure out you know, who's involved, how can we support the families, how can we support the caregivers, um, and how do we deal with the uh, emotional burden of, of doing that. Let's talk about intubation real quick. Can, um, can you explain what that process like and what the implication is? Yeah, so intubation essentially is... The classic phrasing is placing a breathing tube down someone's throat or trachea. Um, and there's a lot of different indications for intubation, but by far and large, it's taking control of the airway. Um, and what that means is if someone's unable to protect their airway, they're vomiting and they're not having a gag reflex, they're not being able to breathe on their own and they need some help with that, then you would intubate someone. And the whole process of intubation um, is kind of divided into a couple steps. The first is you need them to be, usually you need them to be sedated in some sort of way. Now, if someone is so, so like out of it, like they've lost consciousness, they're in cardiac arrest, then you can kind of skip this step because they're already sedated. And this is followed by uh, laryngoscopy. It's a, a tool that's kind of curved to kind of go around the tongue and uh, use it to look into the throat and delineate between the uh, trachea and the esophagus. And then the final step is once you can see the trachea or the vocal cords, you take a breathing tube and you place it in there and then you hook it up to a ventilator. And so that's kind of the, the procedure of doing an intubation. It sounds simple, but it's probably one of the scariest things that uh, most doctors uh, do because the difference between having successful intubation and an unsuccessful one is obviously uh, very deadly. In traditional medicine, like triage, airway, breathing, circulation, ABCs always comes first. And A is at the top for a very specific reason, which is if you cannot control the airway, if you lose, uh, if this person loses their ability to protect their airway or loses the ability to uh, breathe through their airway, basically everything below that doesn't matter because they're not going to be able to sustain life. And so probably one of the most important, even if it sounds so simple, even if it sounds extremely simple. So I could highlight also, if you're worried about airborne exposure from uh, an airborne pathogen, such as coronavirus, uh, intubating a patient is one of the most dangerous things you could possibly do, because you are now literally face to face with this looking down someone's airway with them you know, with the vent and the tube coming out it, it, like exhaust into your direction. Yeah, intubation was extremely scary during this time. In fact, nearly half of our residents who were, you know, in charge of the airway, the second year residents got coronavirus uh, before anyone else. Actually, early February or sorry, uh, early March or like end of February before it was a full blown pandemic. We started noticing that our a lot of our intubating residents were 
route sick. Um, and I think that was our first indication that this was very real and this was this was coming. Um, and earlier on, Alex, you mentioned, you know, wouldn't be right before you're about to intubate a patient, you ask a family if they have any like last words with them. Um, why why is that? During during coronavirus, visitors weren't allowed in the hospital, and I think for a good reason. Um, there's an infection aspect there, but there is also the idea that honestly that the ED was so crowded, stretchers on stretchers on stretchers, stretchers in the hallways, stretchers outside rooms. Um, I've never seen um, the hospitals that I worked at that crowded. We, we actually didn't even allow one visitor during the peak of coronavirus just because it just wasn't feasible. That led a lot of residents in my class to have these last discussions or final discussions before intubation via FaceTime. And that literally is you take your, your phone and you ask them for their family member's number and you FaceTime. And I think the most heart-wrenching things is the goodbyes over FaceTime, the, the tears, the reassurance from the patient that everything will be okay. And they, they, don't, they don't know that. I don't know that. Um, and I think one of the most heart-wrenching experiences I, I had was about to intubate someone, um, gave them my, my phone so they could FaceTime their family. And it was an elderly man. Um, and on the other side of that, that call is, it's, it's his wife. And then it's his daughter. It's his granddaughter and his grandson. And then it's his great granddaughter and it's just four generations packed in a house and if you're ever ever curious about why this virus was impacting the areas it impacted in New York in this Queens area it's because you had four generations of people packed into a two-bedroom house and everyone said go home and quarantine and go home and stay inside or go home and uh, stay in one room and don't talk to anyone quarantine in itself was a privilege the ability to lock yourself up in a bedroom by yourself without any other family members is a privilege in and of itself. And so it was, it was heart wrenching. And I went home and, and bawled my eyes out that night. I just I could not uh, completely comprehend what that was like. And on the note of having final conversations is that once you have that tube and you can't talk, you need to be sedated because it's super, super uncomfortable and agitating and, and, and probably painful to have that tube in place. Um, but it's there to keep you alive. And so a lot of the conversations with family members I have had um, are on the opposite sort of end of that, meaning that they're calling my office. I'm an outpatient clinic, but they're calling me and saying, hey, you know, my family member's in the hospital. I am the surrogate decision maker. I know that you were seeing my family member. What do I do? Or it's a doctor in the emergency room calling me and saying, hey, we have your patient. What did they tell you? And question about, you know, final words, again, because this is so unprecedented, this is so different and, and hard to predict compared to, at, at, you know, we're talking early, mid-March and, and April. Because some of this was unknown, a lot of this was the conversation of, look, um, your family members are about to lose their airway in order to keep them alive, but we don't know what the consequences are going to be quite yet. Um in order to temporarily keep them afloat and keep their heart beating, keep them breathing, they probably need to be intubated. Um, but we don't know what's going to be on the other side of that. And if you can speak with your family members, 
this is a really important time for you because you might not get that opportunity then. The other part of that is that when people are about to get intubated, it's if you're awake, it's scary because you know you're about to go to sleep. Um, it's a traumatic experience for many patients. And I think having that family support is there. But unfortunately, like Alex mentioned, from an infection control standpoint, emergency rooms aren't able to have your whole family be in the emergency room with you. If you're lucky, you maybe get one visitor because that person's now getting exposed, not just to you, but all the other coronavirus patients in that space too. Um, and while we hope we have adequate ventilation, no matter what you do, if you, if you crowd a space enough with coronavirus, people are going to get sick, unfortunately, including the healthcare workers, doctors, even if they're wearing PPE. Um, it's sort of a matter of statistics, but I've, you know, from a, a family, a family member I spoke with said, you know, this is really unfair because I can't be at my parents' bedside and they're dying and I want to be there, but I know that if I'm there, then when I come home, I could spread this again to my family. So family members have had to make some really, really uh, impossible decisions. I always, I, I phrase this as an impossible decision because it truly is impossible. There's no right or wrong answer to these things sometimes. Do you think having this discussion up front, do they help the patients to think about ahead of time? Is it more scary for them? And, um, you know, do, do these decisions change later on in their, in their treatment? Alex, I actually, I, I think Alex explained palliative care better than 90% of the doctors I've ever met out there. So good job with that. The goals of care conversation really is about trying to figure out who is this person who's in front of you. Because, you know, if you're an emergency medicine doctor and I've spent a lot of time working in the emergency room, actually doing a lot of that care um, when I was a resident in family medicine, and you've got minutes to figure out a plan. And if someone's going down and they're not, they're about to lose their ability to breathe or they're about to lose their airway, you really only have a very short amount of time to figure out what to do next. Now, now by default, every doctor that you'll meet wants to save your life. They want to do their best to give you the best possible outcome. But when we know that's not always guaranteed, um, when we know the mortality risk and the morbidity, not just mortality, but morbidity, uh, meaning the, the injury and sort of permanent consequences of doing these things is quite high. Um, that's where we really need to have serious conversations. Um, and now we're talking about, you know, in a full cardiac arrest where someone's not breathing, you're looking at a success rate for a healthy person 40 to, at 40 to 50%. For someone who's chronically ill, maybe less than 5%. For someone who's very chronically ill and elderly, you're actually looking at 2%. And what does that really look like? It, it can be um, very traumatic. I partly do what I do because I've been in a number of codes where I've had to intubate people and do these things. And, and I thought to myself, wow, that was a really violent way for someone to go. And instead of starting there, actually, what we do is we really talk to people about what their values are, what's important to them. Because when we understand the person that's kind of laying on the gurney and we understand what their values are, it helps us make better decisions. And by default, everyone is what we would call a full code, meaning by default, we put the tube in, we do the CPR, we do all the things. And your doctors will offer everything, but what if everything isn't effective? And what if everything doesn't bring you 
to what you're hoping for from that moment. Um, and the scary thing about coronavirus actually is that for a really long time and to some degree, we're still learning what the sequelae of this disease looks like. Um, at first we thought it was all respiratory, right, Alex? Um, mm-hmm. And now we're finding people who have had major strokes, who have lost their kidney function, who have had all these issues, limb ischemia, losing limbs as a result of blood clots. Um, there's all these bizarre things that happen with this virus. And I think when you don't know that as a physician on the front end, you have to make this decision again in that moment where you have a couple minutes to really figure out, all right, do I need to put this person on a vent or not? And given the benefit of a doubt, I, you will. But if they had a choice and they could tell you what they wanted, or they were in a position where they knew that things weren't going to work out they, in a way that was going to be conducive to a good quality of life for them as defined by them. That's where those goals of care conversations are really important. And I actually have these conversations a couple times a day. They're really, really difficult. And what changed is that now every doctor um, has to have these conversations and every patient who comes and understands, oh my God, like we've been talking about this ventilator thing. Is this going to happen to me? And so a lot of older patients actually started coming up to us and saying, hey, like these are my wishes. Don't do that. It really actually made some changes in our society in some way where it really pushed patients to think about this. And even for healthcare providers, me and my wife, we just got married a little over two years ago and we had to sit down and write down our advanced directive. We're talking about two healthy-ish, you know, 30-something-year-old doctors. But I had to tell her what I would want if I ended up on a vent, you know, when to stop, when to go, when to when to not do these things. And as Alex mentioned, for families, it's much, much easier to not introduce an intervention that you regret than have to make a decision of when to pull back something that you've already done. Yeah, these sounds like very, um, very scary conversations. I think they're scary, but I think they're very necessary. And I think to normalize these conversations is to make them less scary. And I also think that, um, you know, innate, innate to these conversations is the idea that perhaps not doing everything is somehow bad. Whereas, you know, a lot of times our job is to frame it as sometimes not doing everything is the best thing, anything that is the best thing you can do. Sometimes not introducing this is violent procedure or kind of almost futile uh, process is, is sometimes the best thing you can do. And I think emphasizing that to families and letting them know that, by the way, us not intubating or us not doing CPR for your patient doesn't mean that we're not going to make them comfortable doesn't mean that we're not going to do our best anyway. There's still a lot of work to be done, whether or not this one issue is addressed. There's still a lot of things that can be intervened on. There's this really interesting conversation in the palliative care community about this idea of um, what some people have historically phrased as withdrawing care, but the truth is we never stop caring. Um, Every provider that you meet, even when they're recommending that we stop, it's not that we don't care, it's that we're actually trying to do what we feel like is best for people in that situation and not cause more harm. But like Alex said, this is one decision um, sort of in a cascade of other decisions that need to come sometimes. And your doctors and your providers still care about, you know, their patient or your family member or, or you, if that's, if you're the patient, but they're really trying to make a, a hard ethical decision. In that. Thank you for joining us today for this in-depth conversation about healthcare during the pandemic. That was Dr. Alex Tran and Dr. Dave Tran. Please remember to follow us and join us for the second part of this conversation where we talk about their mental health and ways to move forward.